0: This backdrop of 1 Samuel chapter 2 gives us a glimpse into the lives of Eli's wicked sons. And I don't know if you noticed but the constant contrast between the wicked sons and Eli of Eli and Samuel, the one who's growing up in the house of Eli as the priest. Did you see that over and over? You have you have these wicked sons are doing this in the sacrificial system. And Samuel was growing in the grace of the Lord. And then these guys are sleeping with the women who are supposed to be helping in the temple. But Samuel was doing right. Did you catch that? All the way through. God comes and says, I'm going to judge you, Eli, in your house. Everybody's going to die. Your sons are going to die on the same day. And Samuel's still ministering. See what God is doing? In the midst of all of that wickedness in the nation of Israel as you're taking your sacrifice to the tabernacle in Shiloh for them to sacrifice this beast for you, you're seeing these priests do all of these immoral activities and you're wondering, is God at work? And the answer is, yeah, He is. Well, we just aren't aware of that. He's preparing for Himself a holy priesthood to show grace to the nation of Israel. So, here's how we're going to hang our thoughts as we move through this passage. There's going to be two main thoughts It's not real great, but follow along with me, all right? We have the pathetic, and then we have the prophetic. So we're going to start with the pathetic, and then move to the prophetic. The pathetic is found in verses 12 to like uh, 21, which is a description of the priest. Actually, down to verse 26 even. And then the last part of the chapter is the prophetic, verse 27 to 36. And as I said, it's a lot to take off in one bite, and so hang with me. Pathetic. There's really two pathetic things that are mentioned. There's pathetic priests, and then there's pathetic parenting. Let's start with the pathetic priests. We went through Hannah's story in chapter 1, and she was barren and being ridiculed by her uh, uh, husband's other wife, Penina, we mentioned that her barrenness was symbolic of the barrenness of the nation of Israel, that there was supposed to be fruit and faithfulness in that nation, and there wasn't. The the sins that we were reading about are not the result of some pagan culture coming in and influencing the people of God and forcing them to commit these wicked and lewd acts. These are the priests of God in the place of God, even in the very presence of God, committing these horrible sins uninfluenced by any outside forces. The ESV in our passage, and I hope you keep your Bibles open as we walk through the passage. I love to have you looking at your Bibles even rather than looking at me most of the time. But verse number 12 says, The sons of Eli were worthless men. It may be on the same page, page in your Bible, you may have to turn back one page to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 16, when Hannah is confronted by Eli in her praying, remember she's so vexed and in anxiety, she prays that Eli thinks she's drunk, and her response to him in verse 16 is, do not regard your servant as a, same word, worthless woman. And, and she's, she's saying, I am not that worthless woman. And the scripture is telling Eli's sons were worthless men. If you carry a King James Bible today, it actually transliterates the Hebrew word and it calls them sons of Belial. They were sons of Belial. And Hannah's saying, I am not a daughter of Belial. These are sons of Belial. That word has, has, is open to some interpretation, but it, it simply means wickedness, good for nothing, even means hard-hearted, rebellious people. In fact, the, the Spirit of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 6.15 uses that as a proper name for Satan. So that we could almost rightfully call these two boys sons of the devil. They are wicked, good-for-nothing, stubborn, hard-hearted, devilish priests. Priests. They do not know the Lord. This is the description in verse number 17. They are sons of Belial. They did not know the Lord. Does this mean? Does this mean they didn't know who He was? They'd never heard of Him before? They somehow made it into the priesthood and someone said, well, we're doing this for Yahweh. And they say, who's that? Is is that what it means? Of course not. They, They had knowledge of Him. This means they did not know Him relationally. Or experientially, and even worse than that, in your translation might say this, it, it in, in other translations says they had no regard for God. It's like they didn't know him and they didn't want to either. It, it, it is very similar to when Pharaoh is approached by Moses, and Moses says, uh, The Lord says, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who's the Lord? I don't know him. It is the idea not of ignorance, but of arrogance. It, it, is, it is not a lack of knowledge. It is a defiant, stubborn spirit. And, and we can't just run past verse 12 and say, okay, we've got some villains in the story and they're Hophni and Phineas, Eli's sons. This, this is meant to shock us. These are people who are leading in worship. They are the religious models. They are supposed to be guiding the people of Israel into the presence of God, offering and helping with the sacrifices, both of a sacrifice for sin and then those thank offerings for accepting the offerings of sins. And they are, they are vile, despicable, devilish men who had no regard for God. Make no mistake about this. That the fruit of these actions, both both the priestly uh, the priestly violations that they would make and the purity violations that they would be involved in, those actions all flow out of a heart of stubbornness and rebellion to God. the The, the fruit is always produced as a result of the root. And their sin is horrific. As I said, you have these priestly violations and these purity violations. There is greed, And there is sexual immorality. And again, you may know this story and you've heard of these guys, but but it is meant to just overwhelm us with the horrific, despicable nature of their sins. Let's go over it, starting with the greed. Again, this is all pathetic. This greed. It says in verse number 13 that it was the custom of the priests... And there's some debate then on on whether this was allowed, what they were doing. So here's basically what verse 13-14 to is expressing. Families would come with their sacrifice, and again, without getting too in detail, there are sacrifices for atoning for your sins, and then there's sacrifices offering to the Lord, hey, thanks for accepting that atoning sacrifice. And some of that food left over would be eaten by the family in celebration, but also the priest's, In Leviticus chapter, I'm just going to leave this up because we don't have time to turn there. Leviticus chapter 7, verses 28 to 36, if you want to read that later, that expresses what the priests were allowed. See, God made provisions for the priests to be fed with some of the sacrificial food. So a portion of that was meant for them. But Hophni and Phinehas weren't satisfied with what God had uh, purported to them. So what they had is their servant. They didn't even do it themselves. This servant running around with a three-pronged fork, and when the, when the sacrifice was bubbling or boiling, and the scripture tells us in a pan, pan or a kettle or cauldron or pot, the priest's servant would come in and say, uh-uh, the priest gets some of that, and this is like the earliest form of potluck, right? They go into the pot and stick it in, and whatever he'd pull out was taken for them. So there's some debate, well, maybe this was allowed. no. It was not. In fact, if you look at the verses, it says, again, there was, there was to be food given to the priest, but look what the end of verse number uh, 14 says, or the middle of it. It says, "The fork brought up the pre- all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself." And that this is not just a one-time thing. They were hungry one day. It says this is a pattern of behavior. This is what they did at Shiloh. See it in verse 14. To all the Israelites. And another reason we know it is sinful is because verse 15 says, moreover or and beyond that. And even if that isn't bad enough with this servant running around with his fork, they did more. Again, there are certain cuts of meat that the priests were to get They weren't happy with that. So before they even cooked the meat, again, the servant would come. You can just imagine Hophni and Phinehas in a back room somewhere sending out their servant with the fork and the knife to bring in this food. Look at verse 15. Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And I was trying to read it in such a way that you would understand it and maybe some devout Jew would say no wait a minute this isn't right this is meant for the Lord in fact again look in those Leviticus passages where it says the aroma of the fat burning would be a pleasing aroma in God's uh, sight and and maybe they would say hey no no this is this is for the for the Lord it says they would take it by force Can you imagine wickedness The priests were not interested in honoring God, only satisfying themselves. And Scripture gives us the interpretation of their behavior in verse number 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You think about this. These people, and it tells us Elkanah and Hannah went every year to make this celebration in Shiloh. So every year they come and are, and are subject to this mistreatment by the priests. Imagine how their worship was stifled knowing that the priests were going to come take some of their sacrifice and, and, and mistreat the whole sacrificial system. And their attitude towards the sacrifices that were being offered to God, scripture tells us they treated those with contempt. This is horrible, horrible. One uh, pastor says about this passage that if you put this passage to music, it would be a very dark and foreboding uh, tune that we'd be listening to, right? It'd be uh, sinister. Evil music. And then you come to this beautiful kind of interlude of grace. And you have these throughout the passage because the whole structure of the passage is designed to show us that even though there's this evil happening in the nation of Israel, God is working behind the scenes showing grace. Look at verse 16, uh, rather verse 18. This is the first interlude. There's going to be two or three of these first interlude of grace and hope. And we're going to come back to the pathetic. We're still in the pathetic, but just a, just a brief respite. You can imagine the sinister music stopping and then, then some sweet and beautiful music coming as it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, clothed with a linen ephod or apron, looking every bit the part of the priest. Let me point out a little bit of progress that is being made. Look back in verse number 11. Just look at the little progress that Samuel's making. You're going to see this progress throughout the passage. In verse 11, when Elkanah and Hannah leave Samuel there, see in verse 11, the boy was ministering, look very carefully at the phrases, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And now you skip down to verse 18, and it leaves out Eli, the priest. Now he's kind of on his own, ministering before the Lord, wearing the linen apron, looking the part of the priest He's actually being prepared to take over the role of Hophni and Phinehas who are treating the Lord's ministry with contempt. Here's a beautiful little section that I don't want to pass over. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him every year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. I imagine Hannah working for a year. Again, one pastor says, you can almost imagine the conversation between Hannah and Elkanah. I wonder how much he's grown this year. Are the sleeves long enough? Do you think you know, he's gotten taller? It's a beautiful picture. You can imagine Hannah making this robe and breathing out prayers for Samuel with every stitch, even knowing of the wickedness That was prevalent at Shiloh. I don't know how prevalent it is that moms make clothes for their children anymore. I can remember having to dress alike sometimes with John. We don't do that anymore. Wear little blue suit coats together or little red panda suits. Uh, We should see if we can get mom to make us some of those red panda suits. I imagine mom, when she was making those, did with great love and delight for her boys. I can't wait to see them in these red panda suits or whatever. I wanted to stop here for just a minute because the picture of parenting is so beautiful here of Hannah preparing this little robe for Samuel. And the robe of Samuel is actually going to be a kind of a theme or a motif throughout the rest of the book. And Samuel's going to wear this robe oh not this particular one, but a robe for the rest of his life. And there's an important section where his robe actually actually rips, and, and he says, "Just like my robe has torn, Saul." the kingdom is going to be torn from you. We'll get to that soon enough. But mothers, listen to this encouragement, moms. Quote, Mothers still make garments for their children, not merely on the loom or with busy needles, but by their holy character, displayed day to day before young and observant eyes, with their words, in their lifestyle and their habits of daily devotions. And we have young mothers here. and We have mothers who have uh, teenagers in their home. And we have mothers who have raised children. The, the, The beautiful interlude of grace here, of Hannah working and praying and making this little robe for her boy. Mothers have such a powerful influence on their children for good or for evil. And they observe what you say and, and how you act and your devotion to the Lord. And you are, I like what this author says, you are making garments for your children with your actions. It's a powerful reminder. And if you've raised children and made mistakes as we all have, pray. Pray for your children, that God would rescue them from whatever sins they might be in and be devoted unto God. There's a beautiful reminder here that ministry to children is so uh, important and critical. It is not that we are just babysitting little ones. We are investing in these children. Samuel is being, is progressing in the faith and will one day take the place of these wicked priests And we look at our nation filled with wickedness, inventing new ways to be evil. The American Medical Association advising that we remove gender from birth certificates. And and this is exciting to college professors because we're inventing new kind of lifestyles that we don't even have the words for yet. We're living in a cesspool of sin. But maybe... The Lord is preparing one of these little boys and girls that comes to our little church and you can be involved in working in that young life and progressing them in faith. Beautiful thing. I hate to leave that scene, but we see the grace of God being expressed to Elkanah and Hannah. And again, we're skipping through some of this. She conceives all these other children her prayer of 1 Samuel 2, 1-10 to is being fulfilled as she bears all these children. And Samuel, verse 21, we're seeing that progress again. We're just at the end of that interlude. He's growing in the presence of the Lord. Sorry to say, back to, the, back to the pathetic now. Verse 22, Eli was very old. Here's the second pathetic part of the priests. Not only were they greedy in taking of the offering and looking on the sacrifices with contempt but they're also guilty of sexual immorality little is left to the imagination here as scripture points out their sin and it was known to all people that they would uh, have sexual relations with these women who were serving in the tabernacle their public worship was polluted their personal lives were tainted and it was well known to everybody It became basically a prostitution center rather than a house of worship. And all were talking about it. And Eli, even though he was very old, in verse 22, kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What their behavior was, uh, excuse me, their behavior was having an effect on the nation of Israel as all spiritual leaders Failures affect those who they are leading. It is the obligation of this pastor and those who are in leadership to live holy lives before the Lord and before their people, lest they lead others into wickedness. It's a warning to, to me and to all of us. Now, let's move to the second part of the pathetic. This is, this is not the pathetic priests anymore. Now we're going to see the pathetic parenting of Eli. I don't want to be too hard on him, but there are some things to point out here. Look at Eli's response to this. I mean, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put it in context because I don't even want to think about how evil this is, but you imagine someone hearing that their sons are, are uh, not only doing Uh, wrong in the sacrificial system and stealing and being greedy and and hindering the sacrifices. Now they're sleeping with women at the tabernacle. And Eli, what what is your response to this? Verse 23. Why are you doing these things? (laughs) Why are you doing these things? And it's almost as if Eli is more concerned with the reputation than the rebellion of his sons. Look at his response. Why do you do such things? I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons. It is no good report that I hear of the people. Notice he says it twice. It's like he's not even really concerned about the rebellion against God, he's more concerned about the reputation of his sons and maybe even of himself. Several books called this attitude sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. I'll use Derek as an example just because it's so far-fetched, but I found, out, I found out Derek was embezzling from the church, committing adultery. Derek, why are you doing this? Well, well, don't you understand? Like, that is not the spirit with which we confront such open sin. Now yes, it would be hard, very hard for Eli to approach his sons, but his obligation would have been to kick them out of the priesthood to make a spectacle of them and say, this is not right. He is a failure in his parenting because he refused to address those situations in his children. Think about back to Exodus, uh, or rather Numbers chapter 3. Aaron's own sons, when the priesthood start, Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu, it says, are offer, offering strange fire unto the Lord. We don't even know what that means. They were, They were... They were doing something uh, askew, let's say, in the sacrificial system. And God struck them down, dead. That's unclear. Now these boys are openly sinning in the sacrificial system and openly sexually sinning. And Eli, thinking back to those boys, should have said, not so with my boys. This is wrong. Instead of this mild rebuke. Here's what one writer says. Eli could not bring himself to be harsh to his own sons. He could not bear that they should be disgraced. Now listen carefully. He would satisfy himself with a mild remonstrance. I looked that up. A reproachful protest. Like a protest. So he would satisfy himself with a mild protest. Even though every day new disgrace was heaped upon the tabernacle and new encouragement was given to others to practice wickedness. So Eli sees these boys, knows it, hears it. There is disgrace upon the worship. There is a, a, a giving boldness to others to do these same type of sins, right? Well, if the priests are doing it, we can do it. And Eli comes along with this mild remonstrance. Guys, why are you doing this? I hear from everybody that you're doing this. Why are you doing this? This sweet reasonableness. This is pathetic because he is too afraid to point out sin. This has nothing to do with what Derek was talking about in the basement this morning about different preferences and things. This is open sin. If you found out your pastor was doing some of these things, you all have a responsibility to say, This will not happen. Andy, why are you doing this? We have a responsibility to our children to do this. Just this week, I will not mention this person's name. I was interacting with someone who claimed that their child was lost. And this person says, I'm not just going to pretend that this is okay, I'm not going to to act like nothing's really wrong. Because what am I doing to help my child? But so many do this. We'd rather be we are more afraid to offend a human we love than the God we ought to adore. If if it was discovered amongst any of my children, this type of open sin, I'm not talking, we all sin, and sin must always be confronted. But, but a continual pattern of sin and rebellion, and we just kind of say, well, I just, I just love them too much to kind of approach them with this. And I don't want to hurt them. And they'll come along. No, you can't do that because you're doing what Eli is doing. You must take it head on because you hinder opportunity for their own repentance. The more we kind of pat it along and say it's okay or it might fix itself, the deeper they are entrenched in their stubbornness and their inability, we're going to see, to resist. Stop pretending it's okay in the lives of those you love, and instead lovingly confront and say, you know, don't be like, why are you doing this? No, say, this will stop. I will not endorse this. This is wrong. You must change. There are great consequences for our sin. Now, there's not forgiveness and repentance and help and restoration and encouragement. Again, we're talking about this blatant, I have no regard for the Lord. I do not know the Lord. I do not care. And I'm going to openly show contempt for His worship and have these great sexual sins. Enough said about that. These sins against the Lord, dishonoring the sacrifices, leave Hophni and Phinehas with no avenue for repentance. Please look at this very important section. And hang on with me. I have about 10 more minutes. We don't have service tonight, so if you can just hang with me, please. It's important. Notice what Eli says to his boys here as he kind of mildly protests their sins. This is verse number 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord... Who can intercede for him? Here's what this means. God has set up ways for us to be forgiven. But if we reject that way, there's no other way coming. So, when Hophni and Phineas showed disregard for the sacrifices, which is the system that God had set up for people to enter into his presence... Sinful people may have a relationship with him through these sacrifices. And Hophni and Phinehas, you can almost imagine them in the back. <laughs> We're going to get a big you know, chop today or a big cut of meat from that bull. The servant's out there with his fork now. Showing contempt for those very sacrifices. What other way is them for them to believe? And, and now we come to the present for those today who mock the sacrifice of Christ and who say, That is an exclusive, bigoted way. There is no other way coming for you. And that's why we read out of Hebrews today. If you trample underfoot the sacrifice of Christ, there remains no more opportunity for forgiveness. And that's what Eli is saying to his boys. You're sinning against the very way God has provided. And and here's what the writer's of commentaries of people who are much wiser than I say, Hophni and Phinehas loved their lust more than they loved the light. And they would not respond to Eli. Now, this is a very important part. Look what happened. Eli is this mild protest, but he is saying, guys, there isn't going to be a way for you. And it says at the end of verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It does not say, looking at it, it does not say, God decided to put them to death because they wouldn't listen to their father. It said they wouldn't listen to their father because the Lord had already hardened them and made it impossible for them to respond. That is that judicial hardening we've been talking about recently. When a person continually... Uh, steadies themselves against the way that Christ has provided for salvation, there comes a point where that mercy is taken away. And now there is no opportunity. This is why Scripture says, today do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Because as that heart becomes stubborner that's not a word, but more and more stubborn and, and stiff and rebellious, it entrenches itself. Until God finally judicially hardens that person, and there is no hope for salvation. Now, how do we respond to that? There's a guy named Dale Davis who wrote a book on First Samuel that I have just loved reading, and he says there are two dangerous responses to this, and I'm going to add the right response. Here's the dangerous responses to when we when we think about uh, God's judicial hardening and taking away the opportunity for repentance. A, one dangerous response is to criticize. Well, God, this just isn't fair. God, you're a God of mercy. I mean, come on. This isn't right. Isn't, isn't, aren't you a God of love? And we can criticize God. And then others will be curious about it. Now, Pastor, when exactly does that occur? How far can I go in sinning before God does harden me? You know why a person wants to know that? Because they want to go as far as they can before they're hardened. Or they're worried about a loved one who has gone a certain... That's not right either. Davis says we ought not to be critical or curious. I would say the response is caution. And Davis says this, instead of wondering and worrying about how this occurs, instead let us tremble before God who can justly make sinners deaf to the call of repentance. The longer you resist the call of salvation... The harder your heart becomes and there is a moment where God says, enough, no more opportunity. That is a warning to all of us. Let's have another interlude of grace real quick. Verse 26, that's hard to take. In verse 26, it goes back to Samuel in this beautiful structure that the writer has given us. Let's go back to this boy Samuel. Oh, yes, let's. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. Doesn't that sound familiar? Same exact praising that is given to the Lord in Luke chapter 2. The Lord Jesus who's growing and we're seeing a picture here. Now, I'm trying to finish. This is a long section. But I don't want to be in 1 Samuel until like 2040 or something like that. Alright, so that was the pathetic and that was bad. Here's God's response, the prophetic. The prophetic. And we'll be much briefer in this. Thank you for your attention. Graciously and anonymously, a man of God comes to Eli. We don't know his name, we don't know his background, his heritage, nothing. But God sends a message to Eli. His word is a pronouncement of judgment. First, he mentions all the mercies that Eli has been given. And you can just read it for yourselves. We read the whole passage, but glance down at it as I kind of mention it. The man of God is saying to Eli, Hey, aren't you part of the chosen group? Didn't I choose your father? He's speaking of Aaron. Aaron to be part of this special, I set him aside apart from all other tribes. He got to be the one to go into the, ta- into the uh, tabernacle and lead the worship and offer the sacrifices. And you're a part of that line. Haven't I shown you mercy and our sinfulness when it follows such great mercy is all the worse. And that's what's being presented here. Verse 29. Since I've done all that, why are you scorning my sacrifices? And why do you, and this is what I just was expressing earlier, why do you, verse 29, look at it, honor your sons above me? And some, of us, some of us do that. We care more about humans and their feelings. We don't want to hurt them. We don't want to, oh, don't confront them too strongly. They might, they might be upset instead of honoring the Lord So the Lord makes this pronouncement. He says in verse 30, I had made this promise that your house would go in and out before me forever. I I made a promise. But, I'm going back on that because there was an obligation with that. Because, verse 30, very end of it, far be it from me to keep that promise, he's saying, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Even though I promised that your household would go before me, I'm going to take that away of your sinfulness the promise required an obligation and eli refused to keep it so god's judgment would come and the judgment is horrific horrific i'm going to cut off your strength verse 31 there will be no one who grows old verse 31 in distress your household will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that will be bestowed on israel and this will come to pass the fulfillment will happen Solomon one day, and I'm going to take you to that passage here in just a minute, Solomon one day will kick out the household of Eli, and they will be on the outside looking in at Israel's greatest period of history, when Solomon and the temple, and it just Israel, just wonderful nation, and they will be on the outside looking in because of this sin. And he says, I'll leave one person, verse 33, and the only reason I'm going to leave him is for him to cry his eyes out so he can see all that has happened to his family. And in case you're wondering if this will really happen, here's the sign for you. Your boys are both goners on the same day. They will both die together. And in their place, verse 35, I'm going to raise up for myself, and this is what he's been doing all along in these little interludes, God is working even in the midst of wickedness, and in the midst of that, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house. He will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in your house will come to that person and say, please, let me have a piece of bread. A huge reversal is happening. This is all fulfilled and we'll get to it in time in 1 Samuel chapter 22 when Doeg the Edomite kills 85 members of Eli's household and leaves one. The guy who's going to cry his eyes out is Abiathar. And Abiathar was eventually replaced by Solomon with Zadok. And Zadok is partially the fulfillment of verse 35. I mean, Samuel is a partial fulfillment of verse 35, raising up this faithful priest. Zadok is partial fulfillment. But let me read to you this from 1 Kings 2 26 and 27, so you understand that the word of the Lord always is fulfilled as God cleanses his priesthood. Just listen to this. Verse Kings 2, 26 and 27. To Abiathar, the priest, this is one guy, the one guy left from Eli's line. The king said, go to your estate for you deserve death. He expelled Abiathar from being priest, but Zadok was set up in his place. And this is 1 Kings 2, 27 for your later reading. Thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that it's been spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So all of this wickedness, God says, this will not stand. I will raise up for myself a priest. I'm going to bring someone in. It's going to be Samuel at first. It's going to be Zadok eventually, who's going to do what I have asked. But all of this, here's the punch of the story, all of this foreshadows our great faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who we sang about in one of our songs, didn't we? Which song was it? Before the throne of God above. A great high priest we have who ever lives and pleads for me. Hebrews 2.17 calls Him a merciful and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for our sins. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Would you today stop being stiff necked and stubborn and recognize I am apart from Christ? I am trusting in myself and I want desperately to be forgiven. Because, I mean, the warning is you harden yourself one more time today, that could be it. Such important lessons, several to review. Godliness and holiness in our personal lives, is demanded of God's servant leaders. Personal holiness is demanded in those who would lead His church. And of course, in all of our lives. We honor Him and respect Him. We need godly mothers and fathers who raise their children to honor God. Who are not afraid to point out sin lovingly in their children's lives instead of saying, boys will be boys and they'll get over it and hey, someday maybe they'll come around. And a bi- the biggest reminder is this. In the darkest of all moments, God is working and there is always grace. Even for you today. Well, Andy, you don't know. I have this background. I've done this and this happened to me. And I... There is grace for you. The only thing that hinders you today from responding is your own stubbornness. Your own hard-heartedness. Respond. What is God saying to you? The way we all respond, last thing I'm going to say, the way we all respond to this today is all dependent on who you think is talking. If you think Andy is talking, you could take it or leave it. If you think this is something Andy created this week and he studied and put this together, and okay, this is Andy's advice to me, then whatever. But if you believe that God has spoken to us today from His Word, then that may require a different response. And I've been praying that you would respond in whatever way, the spirit leads you to do maybe to be saved maybe to make changes in your life to confront sin where you see it but mostly to thank god for the grace that he's bestowed let's bow our heads to pray